Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 25th, 2022, uh, late in the day. We've had a, a kind of either-or day today. Uh, we did a show earlier about the rivalry of the two great soccer players in the world, Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, Ronaldo versus Messi. Um, we all have a view. One is remarkably brilliant. The other is self-made. And it, perhaps our view of whether we prefer Messi or Ronaldo reflects our own values. Um, and in my conversation with the Wall Street Journal writer, uh, Jonathan Clegg, who's a co-author of the book, we agreed that perhaps that either-or option that we provide people on Messi or Ronaldo reflects um, a crisis, a problem with the game of football. Uh, the same may be true in big tech. Um, we have this endless conflict between analog and digital. We're supposed to choose one or the other. Earlier today, uh, I had a conversation with David Sachs, who argues that the future is analog. How to create a more human world is essentially uh, how to create uh, an analog world. He's also the author of The Revenge of Analog. And now we're going to um, interview uh, the anti-Sachs, so to speak. Orly Lebel is the author of The Equality Machine, harnessing, harnessing digital technology for a brighter, more inclusive future. Uh, Orly Lebel is joining us from um, La Jolla, uh, San Diego, where she teaches at UC San Diego in the law school. Uh, Orly, welcome. Um, do you think there's too much either or when it comes to big tech, either we're supposed to be in favor of digital or analog and this endless debate, this endless debate between the two ultimately is inconclusive and pointless. I absolutely think there's too much either or it's not just if we're choosing to be online or offline. It's also if we're choosing to look at technology as utopian or dystopian if we're choosing to be on the inside and therefore that means something that we are participating in the creation of technology or the rest of us uh, are described as being on the outside. So kind of choosing that as an either or. And really uh, my message in the equality machine is that we need a much richer, much more nuanced conversation about where we're going collectively and individually with technology, inevitably we're all uh, very much in the digital world. Yeah, although it seems to me that you're very much a, a digital person. Uh, describing the book uh, on your publisher's page, at least, uh, I'm quoting, at a time when AI and digital platforms are under fire, Oli Labella, a renowned tech policy scholar, defends technology as a powerful tool we can harness to achieve equality and a better future. Those are strong words, Orly. Um, can technology help us achieve equality and a better future? It certainly hasn't seemed to have done so far. 
So it absolutely can. And that's really the purpose of writing the book is to say, look, it's up to us. And inevitably, and a lot of technology, yes, the train has left the station. We are in the digital world. You and I right now are you know, virtually talking. Everybody that's listening is online. Our data is out there. So we need to really think about taking control and looking at opportunities and the potential. And it really, there is already a lot of positive change that we should celebrate. So it's kind of both descriptively wrong to just think you know, all, about all the harms and the risks and not recognize all the, the good and inclusion. And it's also just defeating the purpose of you know, thinking about what we want to do in our social goals when we're only in that cr critical mode because we're not, we're not participating in the direction and what can be, so the aspirational part of it. Orly, what about the question of big tech? You say uh, technology provides us with agency. It allows us to become more human, to empower ourselves. Maybe that's true. But there also is the reality of big tech companies, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples, the Microsofts of the world. We've done so many shows on this. Margaret Mitchell got fired at Google. She's an AI expert. She came on talking about how we can make AI more responsible and accountable. Uh, even um, Brad Failed, who's a distinguished um, a venture capitalist, a tech venture capitalist, believe that uh, big tech is dangerous. It isn't really a meritocracy. Uh, we did a show recently with my old friend Douglas Rushkoff. Um, he has a new book out, Survival of the Richest, Escape Fantasies of the Tech Billionaires, suggesting these tech billionaires like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos have essentially destroyed the world and now they're figuring out ways to leave it. How do you, in your book and in your thinking, uh, in, in, in The Equality Machine, how do you address this whole question of the accountability and responsibility of big tech companies? Yeah, so there's a lot to say about uh, market competition and power concentration in big tech and um, how it's in some ways similar to past concentration of corporate power, in some ways uh, there, there are new uh, directions and new ways that uh, the dominance is achieved through platforms. And actually my research has been a lot about um, labor market mobility, talent mobility. My first two books are about concentration on uh, equality, so, so intellectual property uh, and Right, data and, uh, and uh, collusion competition. You're, you're yeah, two, you're showing uh, this, right? Yeah, right. Your two first book, oh, um, not your two first books. Your your first two books are talent wants to be free and labor and employment law and, and economics. So you certainly written on me. Right, right, and even you don't own me. Uh, my my previous book is about uh, market concentration and dominance in the toy industry. So I actually think a lot about big tech and big companies and how do you reform antitrust. I've worked with uh, both the Obama administration and the Biden administration the, with the Federal Trade Commission and thinking about um, really updating our antitrust laws for uh, having more competition and also more transparency and more accountability uh, of Silicon Valley companies uh, and data companies. 
But I do want to emphasize that one of the things, even in the way that you asked the question, there is a lot of conflation. And this has been really important for me in writing this book and kind of moving the conversation forward and pivoting it. There's a lot of conflation between the what we think is wrong with specific companies and then an indictment on the technology itself. So again, you know, we have these amazing capabilities. We have artificial intelligence, we have automation. We've, we're doing these great leaps in computational powers that can help really help us tackle our most wicked problems uh, from climate change to inequities to global distribu welfare distribution, wealth distribution. Um, and you know, pay equity, there's lots that we can talk about, education, and we, we just shouldn't be kind of giving up a, a lot of the uh, power of data because we're afraid of the, you know, several companies that seem to- Which um, companies, uh, I, I take your point, but is it really yeah. possible to separate these companies from the technologies? Which companies particularly worry you? So there, you know, and on all industries. So, you know, recently you mentioned Google having, you know, so much uh, power and concentration in our searches and our data. Um, we have uh, Facebook with the recent whistleblowing about favoring algorithms um, in a way that uh, privilege profit uh, accumulation over uh, more responsible content moderation. I actually think that there are good ways to do content moderation. And I do think that policy should take a more active role in this. Uh, and even in the, you know, in, 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 in these companies and other companies that I'm very uh, well familiar with. So I'm actually an academic consultant um, for a platform, a market, the largest marketplace of online services, Fiverr, that all the time does content moderation as do, you know, all of these other companies about their child policies, child safety, um, appropriate behavior, anti-harassment. And you can see these companies wanting to do, uh, you know, I can say kind of in a broad brush, it's not that they're now, you know, unethical uh, people in, uh, in, in some of these companies, but in general, there are a lot of um, good intentions, but we don't talk enough about, you know, what needs to be done in a constructive way there's you know, there's so much focus on um oh they're just you know they're all doing wrong by extracting our data and again i'll just emphasize this idea of extracting our data which is like a scary bundled it, it's it's a an indictment on kind of the technology and the power of uh data collection that doesn't sort out what are we actually afraid of you know what what are the misuses of data that we're really wanting to, to regulate or to prevent? Um, and that, again, in the equality machine has been really important to me to sort out what our fears are really, uh, what they should be, what, are, what is rational fear, um, what is distant, unlikely fear, and what are the benefits of, for example, extracting uh, okay. data. Um, right. I, I take your point, but... I still want to address this question of separating the technology from the companies. This seems to be an arms race in the big, amongst big tech companies in acquiring um, artificial intelligence technology. You've written extensively on this. It's part of the book. 
you don't seem to be particularly fearful of AI or, or robotics, but how do we make sure that these private companies, and that includes supposedly open platforms like OpenAI, um, actually use these technologies for the public interest rather than the private interest since they're private companies? So the private companies have always you know, been regulated and we have tools of um, di you know, different questions that we have to ask. So for example, if we want um, anti-discrimination, uh, we want algorithms to create fair outputs, uh, we need to create bug bounties or bias bounties that audit the outputs. Um, we need to require that we're allowing scraping of the data on platforms uh, to see that, for example, in an experimental way that Airbnb or eBay are uh, creating conditions and designing their platforms in ways that uh, there is fairness and equity among the sellers uh, of, you know, sellers of color or, or women sellers are receiving the same kind of opportunities. And again, I, I go through a lot of these research and experimentation and then um, policy that actually, it lends itself to this kind of auditing. Uh, I, I actually think that when we shift to um, a more nuanced and balanced conversation, we can actually get governments and nonprofits to be in the, this work, to have skin in the game and create um, more constructive you know, directions, a blueprint of what do we care about and what are we monitoring? What are we auditing? If you remember, you know, when after a lot of these waves of the scandals, we mentioned Facebook and Google, of, um, you know, about whether they're doing content moderation right, whether um, the, uh, their algorithms are uh, really maintaining, you know, are aligned with what the consumer expects, what citizens expect. There have been calls from within the industry to say, well, what are the guidelines? You know, what, what, uh, what should we do? And these are hard questions. You know, one of the things that we have to recognize is that sometimes there's tensions between um, our quest for free speech and our quest for equality, our quest for privacy and our uh, quest for security or health and safety. And we need to decide those things as a society. I'll give you an example. Um, you know, we, we could use, and other countries uh, outside the United States, I think did it better, um, use platforms and their data that they collect and their monitoring um, capabilities to fight a global pandemic in more direct ways. Um, but I think that because here in the United States, we have so much of this uh, fear. And again, I said, you know, sometimes it's rational, but a lot of times it's irrational. And there's kind of this default of privileging privacy and anti-data collection. And actually in the e at the EU level um, with the GDPR in Europe, there's also this kind of default of data minimization. There uh, was very little tolerance for any kind of tracking and tracing and monitoring during the pandemic. And I think that we should really uh, talk about this as a society. Why are we not willing to give up more of our uh, data for the, you know, the greater good of stopping a global pandemic, finding more cures, knowing you know, how to 
include and create better access to health and medicine. Orly, we did a show with the historian Michael Bess on what he believes are the four existential threats to humanity in the 21st century. It's in his new book, Planet in Peril, Humanity's Four Greatest Challenges, and they are um, nuclear war, climate stuff, pandemic, but also AI. Do you see AI, and, and AI is an important piece in, in your book, The Equality Machine. Is it potentially um, an existential threat to humanity? Um, would you agree with Bess, or, or, or do you think he's got it completely wrong? I think that AI is a tool, and it's a tool that can be like all technology and you know, kind of industrial progress. It can be used for good and for evil, and uh, it can actually all these other you know existential threats that you mentioned can actually be alleviated by using machine learning and um, using it smartly to line up with our goals. But if we just think about it as a threat and are just kind of reactive and preventative, then I think that just contributes to accumulation of power and just a few controlling these automation tools. Um, and then it becomes more of a threat. What do you make of, there's a, a whole literature now of the threat of, um, of AI, one of the books, which is actually a brilliant book by Kazuo Ishiguro, Clara and the Sun, a book about the near future in which smart robots and humans are hard to distinguish. There's a movie coming out in a couple of months, uh, M3GAN or Megan. Uh, about a, a a little girl robot that's out of control. Do you think that these kind of books and movies are unproductive? Are they making people too fearful of the power and role of AI in the 21st century? So first of all, I would disagree with you that the Shiguru book is fearful. Um, he's one of my favorite authors. And in the last chapter, maybe the epilogue of the Equality Machine, I do talk about Clara and the Sun. And I went to uh, meet Ishiguro and asked him about his book and how he sees robots and kind of human machine interactions. And I think he has very much like me actually coming out of this fiction book, an idea that uh, there's lots of good that can happen with uh, social robots. You know, it's, it's a movie of, or a book about a, a robot that helps um, alleviate loneliness and we actually see this the FDA has recently approved social robots to come into elderly homes to um, people who are living alone during the pandemic for example New York City uh, gave out robots to um, help people when they were isolated and there's lots of studies that that can actually do a lot of good. And unlike our mindset, which is all about like how technology isolates us, uh, when you actually look at these studies of uh, putting uh, a robot in uh, entering a home and domestic relations and marital relations and intimate relations, or in even in educational settings, like in schools, you see that people actually interact more amongst each other when you design a robot to kind of help them become uh, more connected, more friendly, uh, more open, accept their fallibility. So, you know, 
there's all that. But but you, to your bigger question of whether Hollywood is helping or hurting, I absolutely think that a lot of the Hollywood dystopian uh, stories are absolutely hurting our vision. Um, and yeah, like the Megan Bookma film that will come out or- um, I know you've got three daughters, um, Orly. You gonna let your daughters see that movie? I don't know. I, I don't know about that movie. I actually don't know enough about it. But uh, my daughters, daughters, you know, watch uh, it. Yeah. I know you've got three. How old are your daughters? So I have a 13-year-old, and then I have two that uh, just entered college. Um, and one is at Stanford, one is at USC. And I actually, as you know, the book opens with this line. Um, I have three daughters. The middle one is bionic. And uh, it's so the book is really personal, and I think it's going to be personal to it each one of us, because we all have stories about how technology can be life-saving, but we are also alarmed by it. Um, so, you know, we- but Would you be okay if uh, one of your daughters yeah, yeah. brought home? Uh, uh, I mean, obviously the Megan thing is an exaggeration and apocalyptic yeah. and the rest of it, but would you be okay if your daughter's closest friend was a robot? <laughs> um, I, you know, it's very contextual. I think that uh, it won't, it, I just know my daughters and wouldn't be their closest friends, but we all, you know, our, our, our kids are so much on their iPhones um, that if we actually design these digital technologies to actually be more interactive and more human, uh, I think that's, that can be a good thing. Um, and as I described, you know, like, there's lots of these algorithms that are happening right now in our dating life, um, you know, and, and how our desires are shaped. Uh, so, so we might as well talk about that and that's happening. Um, again, just about the depiction in Hollywood, I, I talk a lot about these differences, these cultural differences where um, in other places around the world, like in Japan, um, there's much more of that level of comfort to interact as, you're showing with the humanoid robots. Yeah, you wrote the piece um, with Ben. Yeah. At least it's not Denmark. I would get sick of these people always say, well, if only we could be like more like the Danes. At least you're saying we could be more like <laughs> Yeah, there are Scandinavian examples. Yeah, of I don't want to be like also, this. Also, there's the yeah, Danes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not the Japanese. I, I'm, I mean, I don't want to have a debate about the Ishiguro book. I actually probably disagree with you. But there are an, a, a lot of people who are very clear on where they stand on AI. Sherry Turkle's an old friend. She's been on the show. She's very critical of, of as you know, of robots that uh, claim to be empathetic. She's written a number of things about it. Her most recent book, The Empathy Diaries, addresses this. Um, I also had another uh, AI expert, one of the world's leading experts on AI on the show, and the Australian academic Toby Walsh. Um, he believes that our superpower is empathy, so we're wasting our time te trying to teach computers to be empathetic. Well, how, how do you respond to Sherry Turkle and Toby Wolf and a lot of other uh, Toby uh, Walsh who, who suggest that, 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 that it's pointless to, to try to make machines empathetic when that's what distinguishes us from them? That's the one thing we can have value in the 21st century as we get more and more AI. Yeah, I would notice that even there, there's like this tension where you're 
quoting to me all these uh, fearful um, depictions of how AI is mimicking us so well. And, you know, there's like the Google scandal of an engineer that suddenly becomes convinced that uh, the bot there is sentient um, because it's so closely looking like a, an mm. empathetic, uh, you know, social being. Um, and then there are these, uh, you know, absolute uh, descriptions of like, well, they'll never get to that point. We have this capability. It used to be very true. I agree with you that we had this idea that, you know, man is better in this and machine is better in this and we need to keep those uh, separate. So I do a lot of behavioral research, uh, you know, cognitive failures uh, um, and experimental studies with my social psychologist collaborators. And we look at, you know, like, when do people, when are they good at making decisions? So again, there used to be this idea that, well, computers can correct our irrationalities, uh, can make us more consistent, um, can make us more economic beings in, in those, you know, like if we wanna make a financial decision, people are pretty comfortable, um, you know, understanding that we will use an algorithm or uh, even like a very pervasive example that people don't think about, um, landing a plane so you know my husband is a is both my co-author at UCSD he's a behavioral economist but also a former f-16 pilot and he's super comfortable with the idea of self-driving cars because you know he has always as a pilot used autopilot and we kind of all accepted as a society that in that field that's totally fine like they're better to this and then we have people like Sherry Terkel that's saying well, but they'll never be better than us in like offering psychological advice or, you know, therapy or being a friend or even a lover. And we need to talk about how good AI is becoming. You know, there is this bifurcation of like, but look at, you know, what's happening in reality. People are uh, really uh, interacting in very uh, intimate ways with um, robots, with bots, with chatbots, with personal data assistants, and there's good and bad. So again, like I talked well, about, that goes with that. I mean, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Really, uh, I often ask my guests who are on the show talking about AI this question, uh, particularly in the context of um, Blade Runner and and that whole narrative literature of of, of, of our struggle to distinguish between smart machines and humans. Uh, convince me that you're human. Why are you not a robot? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I have a, a friend, Brett, Brett Fishman, who's a, a law professor at Villanova, who all the time talks about the reverse Turing test, right? Like, uh, how do we know that we're not robots? Uh, and he and his co-author, Evan Salinger, wrote um, a book a couple of years ago, um, Engineering, Reengineering Humanity. Um, I, I think that it's true that we're changing with the technology. Uh, you know, we can get into a lot of these kind of philosophical debates of, you know, how do we know when we're still human, when we're so bionic, when we're wearing all these portable or, um, just, uh, you know, biological, uh, internal and external machines and, and relying on them. Um, 
that's a conversation that we can have, you know, whether we're, you know, me convincing you if I'm human, I think it's more fruitful. And it's the same thing that I feel with like, whether we're, you know, we should fear AI as uh, like a threat in some future of becoming singular and sentient and making, you know, complete decisions against humans. Right now, where we are is that we need to channel the algorithms that we have and the online interactions that we have for our benefit. So we need to have more digital literacy, more inclusion, access, you know, I, I uh, show how there's a far bigger threat for people being excluded and not counted in the data that we collect um, than oftentimes there is from just like infringing upon some uh, abstract idea of privacy. So millions and pe millions of people around the world don't have access to being counted to online you know, interactions to financial opportunities and um, educational opportunities online. And those millions are in the global south, they're disproportionately women and uh, people of color. When we just talk about like all the threats of, I think it's just a luxury to talk about like how we as consumers want, um, you know, to opt in and out, out of certain interactions with chatbots that's it's just you've not a complete written, conversation um, you've written about technology helping in the end of bias uh, in terms of hiring and how we treat people uh, we've done a number of shows on that uh, jessica nordel has a nordell has a book out called the end of bias uh, a couple of other uh, guests on the show, uh, Karen Franklin and, Ke and Keon West, two British uh, writers, talk about recognizing and challenging sexism, racism, and other corrosive media biases. They don't do so so much from AI. Do you, you seem to think that bias itself can be addressed by digital technology, and, and you, um, you dedicate part of the equality to machine to address this. Explain why digital technology can help in terms of addressing bias? Yeah, so actually, uh, I, I started the first couple of chapters in the book are all about um, employment relations and hiring and pay and gen gender and uh, racial equity in um, our salaries. And uh, as, as someone I here in San Diego, I'm the director of the Center for Employment and Labor Policy. And I've been uh, a, an expert witness and consultant and, you know, researching the labor market for two decades and with like totally in the offline world, we have to recognize that our uh, jobs, our, our, our industries, our uh, employment uh, relations are very biased. Um, and humans, so, you know, if you think about comparative advantage, humans, uh, when they're making decisions as a, an employer, as a, like, a HR person, there's so much conscious and unconscious bias when they are hiring, promoting, evaluating, uh, deciding on pay. Um, but it's so hard to pierce that. So, you know, we talk about algorithms as being some black box, but sit you know for one day at a courtroom trying to convince a judge or a jury that there was some unconscious bias happening in this very not diverse workplace uh 
that, you know, had nothing to do with technology, but just the dynamic that we've lived with for decades, for centuries of all boys networks of, uh, you know, taking your own into uh, your jobs. It's very, very difficult to pierce the, this black box algorithm of our brain. Technology, on the other hand, we have something of a paper trail. We can actually look at if you're using resume parsing, which so many companies now are using, um, automating the process of um, applicants and then like maybe video hirings using facial recognition and emotional recognition to screen through and uh, give job offers to people who seem more viable and software that helps us assess pay and whether there are pay gaps there. All of those can be audited. There's a digital paper trail that follows that can be evidence in court if things are you know, producing disparate outputs. Um, and even more broadly, and I think this is something that everybody can understand, you know, just the fact that we are using technology to work remotely, to apply for jobs through platforms like LinkedIn, um, or there are platforms that are actually called Know Your Worth, where you can use like crowdsourcing to know how much you are actually uh, worth in the, in the labor market versus, you know, this past where there was a taboo of don't talk about your salaries and nobody knew, especially women and people of color that they were underpaid and they couldn't you know, renegotiate. And it was kind of this code of silence. We are really seeing um, a, a push for diversifying and making more rational decisions about people in the workplace when we're using the power of technology and the power of information and data. That's like, that's a great example of how data can actually rationalize and better markets. Well, let's end uh, with sex. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> it's a Tuesday afternoon, so maybe an appropriate subject. Uh, you, you, you wrote an interesting piece. It's time to talk about sex ed. Can all this digital technology, can it improve our sex lives too, Orly? It can and it should. And everybody should experiment with that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I have two chapters in the book. One's called Algorithms of Desire um, about our online dating. And then um, the second one is about sex robots themselves and why are, do we fear them? Why they might be good? What are the opportunities? But I'll just say this, you know, we need to think about how as Humans, we have our physical limitations, our um, you know, cognitive limitations, and technology can be just like this spirit of let's overcome, you know, like all our uh, um, physical limitations to envision what we really desire and what is kind of rethinking our identity, our passions, our uh, our joy, our and 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 directed in that way. So it's actually I describe a lot of these kind of patterns, and and the, it's a lot of the debates are between feminists of like, oh, I will never enjoy, you know, a male sex robot. And you see um, a lot of these stories that uh, I research, where when you actually experience something, you might shift your mindset. I mean, if there's anything that's you know most important for me in general with that quality machine is that 
we all be open to rethinking our mindset that we don't just accept what either big tech tells us or the media tells us about kind of the utopian and dystopian, but we experience things in ourselves, we try them out and we, you know, have skin in the game to say, well, you know, maybe it wasn't what I thought and maybe I can actually uh, benefit from it. Well, I'm not going to make any dirty jokes about skin in the game because <laughs> I'll get into trouble on that one already, but uh, really interesting. The skin technology, I'll just say the skin technology has really improved. I talk oh, about well, we'll have to a whole this show is like on the hardware. Skin technology. Yeah. Um, a very interesting discussion. Orly Lobel is, is certainly not shy to articulate a quite, I think, quite a radical vision of, of what digital technology can do for us. The equality machine is just out. So congratulations on that, uh, Orly. Well done. We'll have to get you on the show with David Sachs or Sherry Turkle. I think it'd be an interesting conversation. Uh, what else would you suggest people read in addition to your new book, The Equality Machine? Uh, well, we talked about Ishiguro. I just finished Richard Bauer, Richard Power uh, Bewilderment, which is also yeah. like a book. fiction AI. Super, yeah, super interesting book about like our brains and then, you know, putting it on a machine and then channeling uh, our loved ones. Uh, so that was beautiful. Um, on the again, I mean, maybe this is a subject for another show. I'm not sure that powers. You and Powers are, are, are on the same page on this stuff, as, as with uh, Ishiguro, but maybe I'm wrong. Anyway, go on. Maybe. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, there's wrong and right here. It's uh, just, it's, you know, we, we, fiction, it's always been the case that fiction helps us think about, like, you know, our own uh, uh, worlds, our real worlds. Um, and, um, on, but on the nonfiction, uh, so, uh, you know, everybody's reading, including myself, uh, my friend's, uh, friend Dahlia Litwick's book, uh, Lady Justice. Yeah. So great. Yeah, and in uh, fact, Dali I think that the, the show, quality uh, machine. Yeah. Dahlia was on you the show uh, last month. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so I mean, in, in that sense, like, I think that's a, it, there's a similar feel of the equality machine and Lady Justice. So, yeah, there's a lot of negative, but let's talk about the positive in order to see the path forward, you know, the through game. Um, and so that's a, it's a beautifully uh, written and, you know, with her signature wit. Um, two more books, um, Danielle Citrin, uh, uh, the, Our Fight for Privacy. So again, she and I are not um, exactly aligned on how we think. I think we overprivilege privacy, but uh, she's super thoughtful about. She's these, been on uh, the show questions. too. Yeah, she's very. Oh, good. I I should I should have looked at all your. Uh, so maybe a Dan Book was not on your show. Um, who uh, wrote Data and Democracy, a new book um, that again shows how that what we collect is very patterned. Um, great book too. Uh, what are you reading? I don't have time. Well, I have to read your book. <laughs> that's my job. To yeah, read, you totally, uh, everybody uh, should read the quality. <laughs> Excellent. Well done.